As we go to prayer this morning, let me read a few verses again from Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness toward me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Father, we're thankful every day that you are merciful, gracious, that your loving kindness is everlasting, as is, we're told so often in Scripture. Because, Lord, we know we fail every day, and our weaknesses plague us. And yet, Lord, we know that in our weaknesses you display your strength. And so we trust you to speak to our hearts today as we survey the um, the development of the nation of Israel. And we're just so grateful, Lord, that you have given them as an example because they not only encourage us in what it means to reach out to walk by faith, but also they help us to see that in spite of failure, uh, your grace is poured out. Lord, I, I trust your blessing upon each one of us here today. I pray that your blessing will be upon the um, service concurrently and the various Sunday school classes. And Lord, as your name is proclaimed around the world, we pray that many will be brought into your kingdom this day. And we'll thank you for the great things that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. In our study concerning Israel through the millennia, which is what I've titled this kind of interlude here between the completion of 2 Samuel and the beginning of 1 Kings, we have found that about 4,000 years ago, which for most of us is a very long time ago, we can hardly remember it, <laughs> God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. Now, if you have been to Canaan, if you have been to Israel, you would join your voice with many other voices and say, why in the world did God choose Canaan to be the promised land? Actually, the choice of the promise uh, of Canaan is, is very logical. Not that we always can see logic in everything that God does because his ways are above our ways and his thoughts beyond ours and our logic fails often. But in this case, we can see some clear logic here. For one thing, Canaan was the crossroads of the ancient world. Here you have Mesopotamia, and here you have the Anatolian Plateau, the heart of Asia Minor, and here you have Egypt. And in these three centers, great civilizations developed, great empires, great kingdoms. And Canaan was in between. In fact, the area promised to Abraham which stretched all the way from the river of Egypt. Uh, that's still debated what that means, but there is a brook down here called the Brook of Egypt or the Wadi of Egypt, and that may have been what was referred to all the way up to the Euphrates River. This, this whole area right in here is, is a transition zone. It's, it's an intermediate area. It is, has not been or was not directly controlled by great powers except on kind of a rotating basis. I mean, there were times when Mesopotamia, or one of the great powers in Mesopotamia, controlled this area. Uh, at some times, the Hittite Empire, which was established up in Anatolia, extended its control down into this region of ways. Egypt, in the New Kingdom in particular, uh, controlled the area. But mostly, Canaan was outside of those three great power zones. 
So it was a transition zone where the three areas kind of met together. And so from that perspective, we can see that it's a, it's a very logical uh, place. In fact, this is the supposed route that Abraham took, and Terah, Abraham and his family, when they went to Haran, and then Abraham as he came down here. And this yellow, these yellow arrows roughly trace the main route of trade uh, through the Fertile Crescent in, in those days. Coming from Ur, or southern Mesopotamia, moving up along the Euphrates, or there were routes, of course, along the Tigris as well, but up the Euphrates. It was possible to go from Mari across to Tadmor here, but that's a bit rugged and a bit dry there, so they tended to follow the river up this way and then come down over here through Damascus down here. Uh, in Abraham's case, they went up to Haran, which is a little further north than the, than the main route necessarily was, although Haran meant crossroads itself. And so trade coming out of Anatolia would come here and down this way, from this way up to here and around, down the Fertile Crescent on into Egypt. And, and so you have the main route traveling right down through here. In fact, they called, modern biblical geographers call the route that went down through here and around the Sea of Galilee and along down the coast, they called it the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And that connected Egypt up into northern Mesopotamia and then down through the heart, down into the land of ancient uh, Sumer. And so although this area called Canaan was not integral in any of those empires, it was in that kind of zone where the empires tended to, to meet. So it was a very, very important area. And at the time of Abraham, this is the center of world civilization. There is no place in the world where civilization is on the level that it was in the ancient Near East. Chinese civilization was very embryonic at that particular time. Indian civilization was a little bit more advanced, but very small in area, just in the Indus Valley area, the ancient uh, civilization of Harappa, they called it. In, in Europe, you had no kingdoms or empires. Uh, Europeans were still running around in loincloths in the forest. And in the New World, of course, you had the very earliest evidences of civilization developing in the Andes Mountains of, of what is Peru. So this was the only area in the world where civilization had been rampant for 2,000 years already. And it advanced all the way from the uh, Neolithic uh, through the various Bronze Ages and had already begun to move into the Iron Age, uh, long before anywhere else in the world went through those same stages. What is interesting, and we noted this last time, was although God had promised to Abraham and his descendants, the land of Canaan, over 200 years had, had passed, and they possessed no more than two small places. Remember, they, Abraham bought the cave at Mamre, and Jacob had bought a small plot up at Shechem. So two little pieces of land were all that the, the patriarchs owned in the land of Canaan in that 200-year period. And then at the end of the 200 years, Jacob moved the entire family down into Egypt. And they were in Egypt for 400 years. This is the, one of the hard things about studying Bible history is that huge pieces of time pass. And, and we study it in such a short time frame, we, we think of it as just like, you know, one thing coming, falling right after the other. But 400 years, that's a long time. You know, Jamestown in uh, Virginia was just founded 
not quite 400 years ago. You know, the very first English civilization that survived, at least, uh, in, in what we call America. And, and that's the length of time that the Israelites were in Egypt. Not Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob, nor any of the twelve, 12 patriarchs for whom the tribes of Israel are named ever experienced personally the promised land as their inheritance. God had made the promise, but none of them experienced it. And they would all die either in Canaan or in Egypt. And it was almost like the whole promise had been forgotten. But of course, we know God forgets nothing. The fulfillment of the promise doesn't come until over 600 years after it was made. God says to Abraham, come on out here, look at the stars, and I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky, and I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, and 600 years pass, and it hasn't happened. Most of us get uh, really impatient if 60 days passes before something we're expecting happens, you know, something good. 600 years, bit of a long wait for most of us. When it came, it came in a very unlikely manner. The Hebrews were slaves in Egypt with no prospect of ceasing to be slaves in the land of Egypt. But God heard their cry and he speaks to an 80-year-old shepherd wandering around out in the backside of the desert. Moses is living in this general area right down in here, basically the land of Midian. And he's way down here somewhere. I mean, they still debate as to well, where Mount Sinai was located, but the preponderance puts it down, way down here. He, so he was wandering around way down here, pushing sheep around. This is what he's been doing. And God calls on him to be his agent of deliverance. One of the things we discover about God is that he almost never chooses what is obvious to us as the logical way to do things. Or the logical person. You'd think he'd pick a young buck with an MBA, you know, because he's going to have to administer this whole crew, and yet he picks a shepherd. 80-year-old shepherd, no, no less. But of course, we know from the second chapter of Exodus that Moses had been specially prepared for the task. He had been miraculously saved from infanticide. The Egyptians had ordered that the midwives destroy all the males born to the Hebrews because the Hebrews were becoming too numerous and they were afraid of them. And of course, they failed to do so. Um, and Moses was rescued by a, a bit of uh, interesting method, as you remember, floating around in the bulrushes. And he is raised in the Pharaoh's palace. And you think, aha, this is God's plan. He's going to grow up and be Pharaoh. And then he's going to let them all go. <laughs> well, no. You know, he, he decides he's going to take the whole thing into his own hands one day when he finally discovers that he's a Hebrew and, and that uh, the Hebrews are being mistreated. And he goes out there and takes out a, an Egyptian taskmaster. And, and it doesn't turn out the way he thought it was supposed to be. You know, sometimes we feel the call of God, and we see the direction of God, but we take a wrong tact at it. Rather than listening to him to guide us each step of the way, moment by moment, as the song goes, we leap ahead, as Moses did. And as a result, he had to flee the land and had to live out in the desert. And of course, by this time, 
Uh, he, he fled out here into the land of Midian and he married a, the daughter of a Midianite priest and is serving as a shepherd. And he's been doing it for 40 long years. Long enough time to get his social security, you know, and beyond. <laughs> and yet at that moment, God appears to him. Now we have to assume that if God appears to him, somehow his connection with God has been maintained in some way. You have to remember, there is no Bible. Moses couldn't pick up the Bible to get any encouragement like you and I can. And so he speaks to Moses as he's out herding the sheep. Now, a lot of things have been said about shepherds down through time. And sometimes people think shepherds are a bit daft uh, after, you know, with nobody to talk to but sheep year in and year out. And, and so it, it had to be a pretty outstanding thing to catch Moses' attention. And so here is this burning bush. And God is going to call Moses to the most difficult job any human being has ever had to perform. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. This is not an unfamiliar passage to you. And read this profound encounter that Moses had with God. This is verse 5. Then he said, this is God speaking to Moses out of the burning bush. Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, you have to remember, Moses was raised as the son of Pharaoh. It was only because certainly the faithfulness of his mother in the early nursery years that he had some concept of what it meant to be a Hebrew. And to Abraham, he probably, I mean, to Moses, he probably hadn't even heard the names of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in a very long time. And so God is introducing himself. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to, a pla to the place of, and God notes, who's already living there, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. This is not an exhaustive list. There were other ites as well. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore now, come, I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I'm certainly he's remembering the fact that his name is posted on the post office walls. May have rotted away by now, but you know, he was a wanted man 40 years before at least. But Moses said to God that I should go. And then he says, verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Certain Moses lifted his eyes to the mountain called Horeb or Sinai, which was rising above the place of the burning bush. Where the burning bush supposedly was, there is a monastery that today called
called St. Catherine's, which has been there at that spot for over a millennium and a half. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Hayah. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. This is a major turning point, obviously, in the carrying out of God's promise. And, and we know the story. Uh, we spent weeks talking about the, the passages which followed this a few years back. And, and we saw that God virtually destroyed Egypt, nearly destroyed Egypt anyway, in a series of ten plagues. And then he enabled Moses, miraculously enabled Moses, to lead the Israelites. I don't necessarily agree with the route that they have drawn on here because nobody really knows for sure the route. But they were able to lead the Israelites out. Now obviously if you go by this route, crossing the Red Sea was no big deal because there's not much water in the area where this route shows. But if you assume they actually crossed the Red Sea, which is this body right in here, the Gulf of Suez, which is kind of one of the two rabbit. If you look at the Red Sea, it looks like it's a rabbit with two ears sticking up. One is the Gulf of Suez, the other is the Gulf of Aqaba. And if we assume that they came down and crossed the Red Sea here, which is the more uh, conservative view of what happened because many like to downplay the crossing of the Red Sea as not being any big deal, you know, but it's clearly a miracle as you read about it in Scripture. But anyway, Moses was able to lead them out and down to uh, the mountain of God, where God had said he would bring them, uh, Mount Sinai, down here in the southern part of the peninsula by that same name. The tenth and the last of the plagues would result in the establishment of one of the most important Israelite celebrations and the one that we so often see and think about as prefiguring the coming of Messiah. In Exodus chapter 12, reading at the first verse, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide, to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire. 
both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning. But whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hands. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent <coughs> ordinance. And of course, we well know that Jesus Christ himself died at Passover. And he was the Paschal Lamb, the one that was ultimately prefigured uh, in this particular celebration that occurred. And of course, the putting of the blood is so obviously clear to us that it is by the blood of the Lamb that we are saved and as they were saved in that hour. And so God is beginning to prepare his people to understand who they are, who he is, and what their need is ultimately for atonement and redemption. In the desert of the Sinai, God took the next step in what we might call progressive revelation, not only of his nature, but of his relationship to his people. And he called Moses to the top of this mountain here, <coughs> and he gave him a short list of commandments called the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, whereby they were to know how they were to relate to him and how they were to relate to each other. This short list and the Decalogue is really very short, is the foundation for God's relationship with his people and how people should relate, his people should relate amongst themselves. The following 39 years or so after the law was given in Mount Sinai, Israelites, you remember, because they had disobeyed God and wouldn't go into the land as, as Caleb and Joshua urged them to do. They spied out the land. Oh, there's giants in the land. The walls are too tall. And uh, they wouldn't go in. And, and so God said, you're going to all wander around until those 20 years old and above are going to die in the wilderness. And then I'll pray, take you in. During that time, Moses was inspired by God to expand on the Decalogue, and you find in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, expansion of the law and fleshing out. It's kind of like our United States Constitution was written as a skeleton. And it was up to Congress to flesh out the skeleton down through the centuries of time to make it fit the day and the age. And so the Decalogue became the frame upon which the law would be built as Moses was inspired by God. And, and, and you have the, the full program outlined, the whole Levitical system in the book of Leviticus and the restating of the law and expansion of the law as you find it in, in Deuteronomy became the word of God. And Israel for the first time had a written word to read, to listen to, to pay attention to. Just think about it. What's interesting is that 100 years ago or 150 years ago, the brilliant scientists of that day were saying Moses couldn't have done, couldn't have written the five books of the Bible because writing wasn't invented by the time of Moses. 
And now we know, of course, writing had been invented at least two and a half millennia before Moses came along. And so whatever the historians, the anthropologists, and the scientists who are arrogant in their own sights proclaim, just remember that 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now, they'll all be eating crow because what they proclaimed will be proven false. Uh, the Word of God stands forever, and it has withstood all assaults, and the Jesus Seminar and whatever else is running around, demonstrating the philosophy of men and the wisdom of men who arrogate themselves above the Word of God. Word of God will stand eternally. It begins with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Law, the Torah, what Moses wrote because of God's inspiration. And we have to believe that, yes, there was a certain degree of oral tradition that Moses knew, but, but he couldn't have put together all the, such a brilliant description of the early history of man and the Garden of Eden, all of that, unless God revealed it to him. You know, God told him what to write. So he wrote it. And so the degree to which oral tradition plays, obviously there's, there's a degree to which it's in there. But it was made correct by the direct inspiration of God. So what God has revealed to Israel through this is not only the law, but a plan of redemption as well. Somewhere around 1400 BC, and this is arguable, some will say no, it's 13 or no, it's 1200. But if you go with the more conservative uh, dating of the Old Testament, around 1400 B.C., Israel ended up up here, the very head of the Dead Sea in the land of Moab, looking across the Jordan River at a walled city called Jericho. And there Moses died. God took Moses. His body was hidden by God. And God chose another man to take Moses' place, a man whose name was Yahweh is salvation. No chance about that. God chose Joshua to lead the children of Israel into the next stage of his fulfilling of his promise to Abraham 600 plus years before. It's going to now happen. And Joshua's going to be the man. And Joshua got off to a fantastic start with, with God's word to him. Let's look at the first chapter of the book of Joshua. First chapter of Joshua. Beginning at verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, by that he doesn't mean the heartland of the Hittites, but the extended land, the Hittites. The Hittite empire was up in Anatolia. This heart area here of... Uh, this, of course, is called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And it's mountainous all around the fringe. You have the uh, Pontus Mountains up here. You have the uh, Taurus Mountains down here, which extend all the way across here. It's mountainous on this end. Uh, Mount Ararat, in fact, is over in here. 
it's not as high mountains, but it's still rugged all along this coast. But in the middle, right up in here, you have about 100,000 square miles of a plateau. Averages three to 4,000 feet in elevation. It's very uh, agriculturally profitable. It, it, parts of Anatolian Plateau look exactly like Central California. Climate's the same, soil's very similar, crops are very similar. Anyway, the Hittites established themselves in, in this area, which would later become Galatia, Cappadocia, those areas which you know from the New Testament. The Hittites had been up here, and they had extended themselves, their power, down into this region. So that's what he's talking about, up to the river Euphrates and the land of the Hittites, uh, area where the Hittite control had expanded, and the Egyptian, the Hittites, fought each other over this, this area in here from time to time. As far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun will be your territory. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, and I will not fail you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. Wonderful promise that applies throughout the ages to all of God's people. The Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. And so it was with Joshua. You have to think about Joshua having stood in the shadow of Moses for four decades. And Moses is the man who made the decisions. It was Moses' brother, Aaron, who became the chief priest. And, and Joshua was always in the shadow to now become the number one man. You know, after you've been number two or three for so long, how do you become number one with any confidence? That's why God spoke to Joshua and appeared to Joshua and gave him this promise. What followed was an incredible series of God-empowered military campaigns. There are a lot of people who like to say that war is alien to, to God, and that is absolutely false. You know, God inspired the military campaigns which took place here, and God empowered the military campaigns. And it began with, of course, the miraculous destruction of the city of Jericho. Now, we've all seen it probably in the little moody film strip that was produced many, many years ago where the walls of Jericho look like they're about 600 feet high and the Israelites look like ants walking around it. You know, the walls of Jericho were strong enough to keep them out, but they were probably not more than twice as high as this ceiling here. Walls of ancient cities tended not to be more than 15 or 20 feet high except when you came to Babylon or some of the really great cities. Just long enough, tall enough so you can't scramble up very easily. But it looked great to them, and, and, and God miraculously destroyed it, because who were the Israelites? Were they a warlike nation? No, they had been servants, uh, slaves in, in Egypt. And, and, of course, the children, who were now the main warriors, had grown up in the wilderness, so they were tough, but uh, they weren't exactly a warring nation. And so God destroyed that first city that they faced there, 
miraculously. And of course, that gave them great encouragement then to know that God was with them. And then Joshua led the armies of Israel in an overwhelming defeat of a confederation of Canaanite cities in the southern part of the land. The king of Jerusalem, or Jebus, and several other cities in the south had joined forces in a coalition. And from Jericho, the forces of Israel met this coalition and they fought their way down the Beth Horon Ridge here into the Aelon Valley. The Aelon's a creek that runs down here. And it runs down north of Jerusalem down the, into the Shephelah, which is this foothill area along through here, out of the highlands. And they chased them down there into this particular area. And God gave them an overwhelming victory. And there was no doubt that it was a victory that was produced by the power of God because of the astounding account which we read in the 10th chapter of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 10, we read of this account, which many people have poo-pooed, especially the people who like to think of Bible as nothing but a human construct. And the miracles are all the invention of people with, with, with uh, you know, vivid imaginations. But in Joshua chapter 10, reading at verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the descent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled before the Lord while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. Azekah is a, uh, is a tell in uh, south central. Israel, you can stand on the top of that tell today where the city of Azekah used to stand. It's a really fascinating place because you can not only visualize this, but you can look down into the valley below and see the very valley where David and Goliath had their confrontation many years later. There were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with a sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, O moon, in the valley of Elon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves on their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher, which, by the way, we don't have anymore? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like it before or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, how do you deny that God has given you the victory if God keeps the sun in the sky for an extra 24 hours or 12, however, whatever it means by a day there? Kept the sun up in the sky long enough so they could defeat the enemy and the enemy could not escape in the darkness. So you have the miracle of the destruction of Jericho and the miracle of the sun standing still in the valley of Elon. What more do the Israelites need? Well, they clean up the enemy down here in the south, and then Joshua leads them into the north to conquer the northern part of the land. And again, a coalition of forces is drawn together, uh, headed up by, they don't really show it here on this map for whatever reason, but right there, I put a little dot there. That's the great city of Hazor. 
which is one of the greatest of the Canaanite cities, again a walled city, uh, even greater than Jericho, which was a powerful center and there was a mighty coalition of forces. And the scripture says, by the waters of Merom, a big battle was fought. Well, this is Mount Merom up here, which is the highest mountain in all of Israel at just under 4,000 feet. And probably on the slopes down here where there's a spring, not far from Hatzor, the battle was fought and this coalition was wiped out as well by the power of God. After about seven years of warfare, Israel had largely subdued the land from the area of Hatzor near the, this, this is Lake Hula, H-U-L-E-H. Up here today it's, it's just a little puddle and most of the lake bed has been converted into good agricultural land. Uh, but there was a small lake up here. From there all the way down to Beersheba, uh, even down into Kadesh Barnea, which is south of Beersheba in the southern Negev. This was the land that, of Israel plus Gilead over here, which is this plateau area here north. Here's, here's Moab. From here to here and then Bashan up here. So all along here, this whole Transjordanian area in the modern country of Jordan today was part of Israel as well as the region from the lake here clear down into the southern Negev. We read at the end of Joshua chapter 11 these words, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. By this time, Israel possessed Transjordan, and we read in Joshua that they conquered 31 city-states. Now the scripture says the king of such and such a city. Israel under the Canaanites was divided up into city-states. A little town, walled town usually, with the surrounding territory was ruled by what we would just call a chieftain or a sheikh or something. But he's called a king. And, and, and there were 31 of these listed there that Israel conquered in the south and in the north to be added to the Transjordanian area to comprise the, the inheritance. Throughout most of history, before the Israelites conquered the land, Canaan had been under the hegemony of either Egypt held hegemony over the area or momentarily, usually not for any length of time, the Hittites might extend their power down there, or more likely one of the Mesopotamian powers could extend their power clear over to here, beginning with the Akkadian Empire, which existed about 2200 BC, which was probably the first great empire in this, this whole world, the Near Eastern world, which, which covered most of the Fertile Crescent for uh, maybe a hundred years or so. Canaan was under the hegemony of one of those powers, or it was just operated by a, a bunch of petty kings or warlords, we might even call them. Canaan was never a united nation before Israel came. There was never a king of Canaan who ruled this whole area. It was always a bunch of petty lords. It's like studying the early history of China where you have all these warlords fighting against each other and there wasn't any kind of a really truly unified China until only about 2200 years ago. And, and the way, in the course of the history of India is the same way. You know, India very once in a while would become unified, then it would break up into all these little warlord states. 
but this area, the only time it was unified was when the powers moved in and said, we're taking over and you guys are like governors here and, and we're ruling the land. And then when that power weakened, why the warlords uh, ran their own territory again, a bunch of, like a bunch of mafia dons or something. And that's the way the land was. And even when the Israelites first took over, it didn't change much because it was tribal. There was no national government. Joshua was a war leader. And, and, and the, the tribes were given their various locales and the, the um, tribal leadership sort of took care of, of the various areas. And so you had a kind of village leaders and, and, and maybe tribal leaders, but there was no national government during the time of Joshua nor throughout the time of what we might call the area of the, the period of the Shofatim, the, the judges. It wouldn't be until Saul would come along that you'd even begin to have a modicum of, of a national government, and even Saul didn't provide a whole, a, a true, full-blown national government. Well, let me end with this today. Two and a half tribes, two and a half tribes of Israel were located east of the Jordan River. Two and a half tribes were, were located over here. You had Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh located on this side of the Jordan. The other nine and a half tribes occupied the area roughly from Dan down to Beersheba, even though Dan wasn't originally at first occupied. The Canaanites were still living in what would become the city of Dan at first. And so from the slopes of Mount Hermon, which is the mountain up here, so from the southern slopes here, all the way down to Kadesh Barnea, which is just off the map here, um, this was the tribal territory that the Israelites had. It was not the full territory promised to Abraham because they may have pressed up against the brook of Egypt down here, probably did, but they were, did not reach the Euphrates. They didn't occupy this Lebanon, which God said to Joshua, shall be yours. This Lebanon remained in the hands of the Phoenicians. And it wouldn't be until David's day that the Phoenicians became sort of tributary to Israel for a short period of time. And it wouldn't be until David's time that they would actually push up to the Euphrates River. And so even after Joshua, the, the whole fulfilled promise, uh, the whole promise had not been fulfilled. We have a beautiful summary of God's role in all of this. And we'll end with this, Joshua chapter 24. Verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, that means the Euphrates, uh, Terah, the, God, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land, all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. That's down in Edom. That's the area in southern Jordan today. And, but to Jacob and his sons, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued the Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers and chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. It's really hard to drown a whole army if it isn't in a significant body of water. You know, you can't drown them in just a little 
swamp a few inches deep or a sand sea or some such thing. Verse 8, Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who lived be, uh, on the Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. You took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. And Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities which you had not built, you have lived and you have lived in them. You're eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. In other words, God gave them a turnkey country. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and for my house, Joshua said, we will serve the Lord. Well, next week we're going to look at what happened very quickly after that, how Israel evolved as a theocracy, and then as a monarchy, and how that monarchy became divided, and how the divided monarchy became swallowed up in pagan nations because of the disobedience of God's people.